Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome, Solar Warrior. You know, I'm honored that you're joining us for another fantastic foray into the world of solar energy. And I'm even more honored that you're tuning in this week. Merry Christmas to all of you listening the week of Christmas, the week it published is. I do hope that you're enjoying your break. Hope you're taking one. Many of you are maybe just starting to settle in for a few days off, and I'm honored that you've decided to spend it with us. I don't always release a long-form episode on Tuesdays. Maybe you're not even listening to this on Tuesdays, but we're nearing the end of the year, so I'm betting that you've got a little more time on your hands. And if you're new here, I hope you'll get a ton of value from this episode, and thanks again for choosing us, giving us a chance to earn your attention. Hey, look, some of you out there are really going to identify with today's guest and the problems that he solves. If you've spent any time developing solar projects, large or small, you know it can be an endless string of whack-a-mole in terms of organizing, checking off tasks, data rooms, diligence, checklists, Dropbox, Excel, Asana, Salesforce. The tools are disorganized and the tasks disjointed. It's always baffled me why, after 15-plus years, there still just doesn't seem to be a better way to organize and manage solar projects. You know, it frustrated Philip Bruner as well. And after Philip had struggled with the data disorganization of developing his own projects, he went on the search to find and then to create a tool that would solve it. Anion was born, and his journey to build software as a non-technical co-founder is one that I found insightful and entertaining. I hope you'll stick around and learn as well from his approach and maybe even his mistakes. I also want to thank you for being part of our tribe here at Suncast. It's been a wonderful journey and a marvelous year despite the many, many setbacks we've all faced. We've laughed, we've cried together this year, and I'm feeling incredibly grateful for your friendship and the momentum that we've achieved this year. You are the reason that I keep showing up here each and every week, reaching out to all of the entrepreneurs I can to try and glean their insights, their hacks and tricks and tips so that you and I can both grow together. You're the reason this show has more than 330 interviews, more than 300,000 downloads and growing. I look forward to another year with you. We have a lot of fun stories to share. For now, let's get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, this is a fun conversation with someone who has more experience than just in the United States renewables market. I'm excited to have uh, my friend Philip Bruner on the show today. Philip co-founded his first startup back in 2009, a social enterprise that accelerates renewable energy and internet access for communities worldwide. His thought leadership has been featured on notable platforms like MIT Sloan Review, The Financial Times, Reuters, Oxford Research Group, and now 
right here on Suncast. Philip, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nico. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, likewise, man. It's uh, it's exciting to get a chance to dig in with someone who has done some incredible work for project development, but also has a really interesting experience and background thinking about accelerating the renewables and clean energy transition. But before we jump into that, I have an interesting question for you. How did having your 21st birthday essentially ruined by a botched airline trip push you towards renewables? As you can tell, you know, 21 was, was a while ago. <laughs> yeah, it's still a memorable one because uh, my birthday happens to be uh, September 11th. So September 11th, 2001, we all know what happened. Uh, woke up uh, expecting to, uh, you know, go for breakfast and, and have a celebratory coffee with some friends. And um, <laughs> that obviously didn't happen. Um, we spent most of the day and subsequent days in front of the TV like everyone else. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess yeah, at that time I was... Um, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Washington studying political science, you know, just like most people didn't have a clue about the context, didn't know anything about Middle Eastern politics, really. But sure enough, you know, after digesting what had happened and and getting to understand a little bit more about the context, got really interested in international politics. You know, one of the things that I came to realize is just how dependent the U.S. economy was then and still is to an extent now, uh, although less so, on uh, Middle Eastern oil. Uh, the history of that and how we got here is a fascinating history and, and one that could have gone different ways over the lifetime of you know, our parents' generation, um, but didn't. Here we are today in a situation where you know, our footprint in the Middle East has just been extremely heavy. So you know, going back to, to that period where I just kind of, you know, started learning about energy politics and geopolitics, uh, I guess what became immediately obvious to me was, you know, there are other ways to generate electricity and other ways to, you know, manage your transportation networks and your energy systems that are sustainable. Why don't we do that? And I remember in a conversation we had previously, you said that as you were thinking about finishing out your undergraduate career, you started reading a lot more about Middle Eastern politics. The book, The Prize by Daniel Jurgen, I believe was pretty formative. How, how did that open your mind to the possibilities of expanding into a, a new career for you? Daniel Jurgen is, is great and he's got several books now. I think he's even got a, mo- a more recent one out um, talking about the energy transition. But um, you know, the, the prize is sort of the Bible of uh, the oil and gas industry. It's a definitive guide to the history of the industry. And um, it's fascinating and exciting and reads just like, you know, a good work of fiction. What an incredible history the oil and gas industry have had. And reading that book really opened up my eyes to the possibilities. Coming from a renewable energy background, there's a lot to be learned from what oil and gas have gone through to, to get to where they are today. You know, that, that adventurous spirit, that entrepreneurial spirit, and that extreme level of, of risk-taking and just really doing whatever it takes to establish market dominance, that's inspiring. And uh, we have a lot to learn from, from those guys. Well, Philip, as I recall, you crossed the waters into the United Kingdom, both for additional study, but eventually a career that led you into thinking about studying geopolitics and ultimately renewables. How did you initially whet your appetite, get exposed to renewable energy as an alternative uh, beyond just studying the oil and gas industry? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, so I, um, I went to uh, Edinburgh, Scotland in 2009 to, uh, to do a PhD. And um, my academic background is in geopolitics. 
and energy politics. At that time, back in 2009, uh, I didn't really even realize this was going on, but you know, Scotland basically had the most ambitious renewables electrification targets in the world at that time. You know, their goal was to go 100% renewable in, in uh, 20 years. And the reason they were able to- In 2009, you said? Back in 2009, yes. Yeah. Scotland wow. was really at the cutting edge. So at that time, and it's still a little bit the case, you know, uh, Scotland was basically trying to lead the world in sustainability. There are geopolitical reasons for that. So, you know, Scotland as a territory sits on top of um, a lot of wind, wave and tidal resources. At that time, uh, the first minister, Alex Salmon, had, a, had an internationalization policy where he was trying to promote Scotland as, a, as an international center of excellence for um, clean energy uh, on a massive scale. And what's interesting about that is, you know, if you look at the history of, of industrial Scots, I mean, the Scots invented most of the technologies that we use today that comprise, you know, the modern world. Scots invented the x-ray, invented the first telephones, invented uh, the first microscopes. I need to fact check that last one. But um, yeah, uh, Scots invented the steam engine. You know, the Scots were, were largely responsible for most of the technologies that had their birth in the Industrial Revolution and, and you know, carried on and, and are, are the foundation on which today. Two things I didn't know that Alexander Graham Bell and Alexander Fleming were both Scots. I did not know that. I don't know why I didn't know that. <laughs> well, a lot of people, you know, uh, aren't aware of that uh, outside of the UK. But um, yeah, so, you know, it was, it was a super inspiring time. You know, I, I had this idea that, um, you know, I wanted to get more involved uh, more than, you know, just being a researcher and, a, and an academic. Um, you know, I kind of felt like uh, I had just as much a shot as anyone at, at starting a successful company. And, um, and sure enough, you know, first, first company um, got off the ground with a couple of co-founders and that one's still running. That was the scene, right? So that was called Sustainable Community Energy Network, short the scene. So the scene's still around. Uh, it's international now. On the back of that, I, I started getting a little bit more commercial. Um, I got recruited by a, a law firm to um, to build a commercial renewables portfolio. Worked in distributed generation for a few years. Uh, we raised some money and and um, rolled out that portfolio. And then um, it was it was through that experience of project development over several years that I started to realize that. The renewables industry, from a development point of view, was just underserved. That you know, there are a lot of potential software applications that could have addressed some of the inefficiencies in the way that we were doing things. I mean, projects are just too slow, and there's really no reason for them to be so slow. And often very manual in their application and, and development. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, the industry is kind of old school. I mean, we're we're getting we're getting better about embracing digital technology, um, but we're slow moving. I mean, infrastructure in general is, is kind of a behemoth. Um, and so, but, you know, looking at the challenge of climate change, um, we don't have, we don't have 70 years to establish, you know, 50 to hundred percent market share. Like we've got 10 years to do that. Digital software and, and data-driven innovation absolutely holds the key, I think, to, to accelerating market share and, and, um, giving us a competitive edge. One of the things that it seems you have a penchant for is organizing people, not just from a thought leadership perspective, but from an aggregating ideas. In fact, the very venture that you are running now, Enian, uh, was birthed from one of these sort of collaborative meetings that you are prone to put together. I want to highlight both of them, both the Green Tech Meetup as well as the Green Investment Forum, which came first? 
So Green Tech Meetup came first. You know, this was, again, sort of midway through my renewables career in Scotland. There was a, an incubator called the Edinburgh Centre for Carbon Innovation, where um, our first company was housed and our second company was also partly housed. This was a, an event space, a research centre where people in the sustainability sector, broadly speaking, would kind of come together and, and network and stuff. So it was a perfect you know, it was the perfect space for cross-pollination of ideas. One of the things that was going on in Scotland at that time was there was um, at the School of Informatics, just kind of across the across the road at um, David Hume Tower, there was a meetup group called Tech Meetup that used to get together. And uh, the Tech Meetup was agnostic. You know, they weren't specifically focused on, a, on one vision or mission. But what Tech Meetup did that I always found really cool was that they would... They would have like um, a sort of fortnightly gathering where people, entrepreneurs and investors and technologists would come together and um, in a very informal way and just have beer and pizza and, you know, share ideas. And there'd be a couple of presentations. The most unique thing about that um, meetup was that everyone got the chance to speak. So they would literally, you know, it didn't matter if there were five people in the room or 50, they would literally go around to every single person that was in the room and everyone would have, you know, five to 10 seconds. My name is this and I'm doing this, or my name is this and I'm looking for someone who does this. And I love that. I thought that was such a cool format. And so we, we copied it, uh, but we did it for the green technology sector and we did the same thing. So we, we had green tech meetup for a while. And uh, what's cool about that format is because, you know, it's, it's ties off, it's uh, informal, it's more of a party than it is um, a conference or a, or a lecture, you know, uh, people are more candid and deals get done. So we had several startups that raised their first or second rounds through that meetup. That's fantastic. How long did that go? Uh, that went for two years. I ended up getting wrapped up in this more commercial job and um, I tried to pass it on to someone else, but you know how these things go. I mean, it's, it takes a lot of effort to organize stuff like that. So, um, so you'd birthed this idea, leveraging the resources around you, just being observant and saying, well, we could do that for our industry. Again, I see a pattern of you looking at other industries and other activities around you and saying, well, why can't we apply that to my chosen field? I applaud that. I want to highlight that as a takeaway the ability to leverage the resources around you to grow your vision and community is a skill. And it's one that far too few people realize, recognize, or, or uh, put into action. So this same meetup that you created is in fact where Ennian was born. Can you tell me how that happened? Yeah. So, um, you know, I got my chance to speak in, in the meetup, just like everyone else. At that time, I was interested in, in software. I, you know, I'm not a software engineer by background. It was going to take me a long time to learn to code and you know, if someone can do it better, then, you know, don't do it yourself. Find someone that can do it better and, and bring them along with you and work with them on the mission. I presented this idea, you know, project developers um, lack software tools and projects move too slowly, but we need more projects to move quickly all over the world if we're going to solve climate change. Does anyone you know, want to talk about that? Chris Nader, who is a full stack engineer, came up and, and uh, approached me and said, hey, you know, I'm kind of new to Edinburgh. I, I like I liked your um your comment. Let's let's talk about this. And he ended up being our first employee and uh, and built the first MVP for Ennian. So um, that's how we started. And a lot of those early ideas around you know Ennian were were formed with Chris and and some of our wider group going to the bar and having a pint or going for lunch or you know. I'm often taking notes and just thinking about what I'm learning from these conversations. And another one here is just be clear about where you have a need and communicate it openly, right? You had a unique forum, an opportunity. Mm. Some would be timid to say, 
I have this idea, but I don't know software. They would maybe search online forums. Yet in this public forum that you created, you said, I have a need. And somebody came up and says, hey, I'm an engineer and I can help you. Yeah. We'll take this opportunity then to present the idea of any because I don't want to sort of leave that on the sidebar for too long, given that it's core to the, to the conversation we're having. You'd been in renewables developing projects. You mentioned the fact that in many ways, the processes were archaic and arcane and, and there wasn't a whole lot of advancement. Tell me about the moment where you thought, I need to go ahead and create this business. And how did that work its way into starting a company and more importantly, finding a technical co-founder who could help you bring the idea to the world? I remember the the exact day when this happened. Uh, we were um, this is in my my second company, um, which was a distributed generation project development business. We had a meeting at the offices of the environmental impact consultants who were a partner in our firm, and uh, we had a, a portfolio of projects on the go. And you know how it is with renewable energy development. You've got you've always got your pipeline, and you're trying to figure out you know what your eighty twenty is. You know how do I exactly where, where are my data points, and how do I where's my funnel, and how do I you know where do I how do I know where to focus my time? And you know so we were talking about that and going through our our budget and looking at you know some of the expenses associated with these projects. You know, projects are, are very reliant on specialists. So, um, you know, you need environmental impact consultants, consulting engineers. You need you need a, a whole group of stakeholders to, to come together to make a project work. And a lot of times the jobs that they have to do are very specific and temporary. So, you know, someone comes in, they do a specific job uh, at that stage in the project lifecycle, and then they step out and then their job's done or they move on to the next the next job. So I remember sitting down and looking at the roster of companies who were involved in, uh, in helping us move our portfolio along. And there were literally 20 companies um, involved in our little, you know, it wasn't a large business. I mean, we had, you know, a portfolio of maybe 40 projects. 20 external companies. So like matrix management at its best. <laughs> right. That's right. And not only were there so many companies involved, but it was like, we just didn't have any visibility um, on what these, what these people were doing. I mean, you know, we knew roughly what their, what their, uh, but their job description. You was. mean like day to day, you weren't clear how, who's moving the ball where and what their velocity is, right? Yeah, there was zero visibility of that. And, you know, the way that we were tracking tasks and, and for liability as well to your project success. Totally. I mean, you, you're, you've got your risk register and you're trying to figure out, you know, you're trying to map what your risks are and, you know, ensure that you're, that you're delivering to budget and that you're targeting the most you know, severe risks and, and managing those. And there's just no visibility to do that. So, you know, inflated costs, overrun budgets, uh, delay, you know, unexpected delays were the norm. One of the biggest problems, of course, was, was uh, trying to get a grid connection uh, agreement also. Um, there's a problem in Scotland where there's a lot of activity, but you know, a pretty rural grid that's a challenging environment. And, um, you know, getting some certainty around, you know, what is the is the nearest available substation, does it firstly have the capacity to take on our project? Does it require an upgrade? If so, how much is that going to cost and how long is it going to take? Just a simple question like that. You know, take you take you six months to a year to get an answer to that question. This is while you're still trying to decide, is this the right interconnection? Is this point? project even bankable? Yeah. Right, which is quintessential to have I chosen the right site. I mean, site selection is one of the key nodes of project success. In the back of my mind, I remember thinking, if I just had a, a platform where... I could manage all these tasks. Everyone that we were working with on our project was also on the same platform and were logging in when they were doing work for us and we had visibility of that. And uh, you know, if I could if I could also share documentation securely through that platform and have it, you know, on my laptop and on my phone, I would have visibility of everything that's going on in our portfolio. 
we would probably save a lot of money and our projects might move more quickly. And our, our filtering mechanism, our funnel for figuring out which projects are worth putting time into because they're the ones that are going to you know, convert uh, would have been a much more intelligent data-driven funnel. You know, back when I was developing projects at Trina and then Conergy, we used a hybrid, as everyone does, of different elements from Excel to Rike to Smartsheets. And Smartsheets has come a long way as yeah. a project management tool. Why does something like Smartsheets not work well enough uh, and so that, such that you would need to create an all-new software platform that you need to now go out and sell instead of utilize? I mean, Smartsheet is a great tool for, uh, for tracking and managing tasks uh, and uh, against you know, budgets. And it does get used in our industry quite a lot. I guess the, the one big difference between our software and theirs is that everything in, in the Enion platform evolves from uh, documents. So there's, there's sort of key steps and milestones in the project development process that are basically the same for, for every project. You know, you need your, your land lease, you need your, uh, you need your option agreement, you need your environmental impact assessment. You need your grid connection agreement. You need your off-taker agreement. You need planning permission, right? So these steps are, are universal to building a power plant. You know, every every project manager, they might not, you know, get all of those steps in the same order, but they need the documentation to signify that each of those steps has been completed. And so really what, what we're doing is we're just collaborating on documents. From a software point of view, if you kind of distill everything in renewable energy project management down to its finest components, we're creating a set of, of documents that can be used to sort of signify that this project is legitimate, that it's bankable, and that it has the necessary approvals to move forward. It sounds like a software-enabled infrastructure data room. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we call it intelligent development. We call it smart infrastructure management. That's cool. I mean, for those who aren't in project development, probably one of the biggest, the bane of many folks' existence when they're trying to kind of figure out how to get all these stakeholders coordinated is this famous data room. So if you're sending a project as a package to a bank, you got to send them a data room. If you're sending it to an IE, an independent engineer, you got to send them a data room. And it's, do I use Box? Do I use Dropbox? Do I use some other platform? A lot of them will have passwords, you know, they'll all have different yeah. passwords or... Some of them will have, you know, you'll have shared like a subset of the files with different people and maybe like, you know, you've created links, but you forgot who you shared those with or one of the collaborators you worked with is no longer, you know, involved in the project. I, for some reason. I still have access to data back. rooms. So yeah. I, I still exactly. have access to data rooms where I have no place having access. Correct. Like I see uh, how projects are moving along that I'm not involved in um, now, like two, three years on yeah. and they're still, they're still moving. So I see that not only liability, but disaggregation of data. But what I also, what also occurs to me is that for just about every niche, and we'll call for the purposes of this argument or use of the word niche, like being a dentist is a niche, right? So from a software perspective, there are more than a handful of CRM, customer relationship management tools that focus just on the dentist segment, right? Niche. In construction management, there are loads of tools that help you know, folks that are managing large con facilities construction or hotels or hospitals. Uh, but our industry being relatively new still doesn't have purpose-built, I'll say in mass, doesn't have purpose-built niche-capable uh, infrastructure management tools. It sounds like Enion aims to, to, to fit in that marketplace where Dropbox meets Salesforce meets some, you know, email Right. Yeah. Like, a, like a base camp for, for solar. Yeah. That's, that's a good way of looking at it. I mean, it's vertical integration of productivity tools and, and 
technology speak. But yeah, basically everyone needs to operate from the same page. We need a shared source of truth for the files that represent the significant steps and milestones in the project lifecycle. Why leave? But but project development, I have lots of friends who are successful project developers. It's a uh, it's a it's a different skill set than building a company around helping project developers. Well, why leave a profitable, successful by all uh, measures project development career to develop tools for project developers? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, I guess um, I wanted to see if I could do it. Uh, <laughs> you love the challenge. <laughs> I was always fascinated by by software entrepreneurs, uh, fascinated by the scale, the potential scale of it, and um, you know, working with digital tools um, rather than working with physical physical tools and supply chains uh, has so much potential because it's like you know, if you need to if you need to change something in a in a digital software environment, you can just change it. You know, if you need to if you need to change something in a project in, in the built environment, like you have to go on site and you know bring in a team and, you know, it's, it's a mess. So digital tools offer so much more scale and flexibility when it comes to being creative um, that I always found that side of, of software um, compelling. Something else that you find compelling is starting businesses to begin with. You're on number three, as I recall. What are the transferable skills from, we'll call it project one and project two, the first couple of businesses that you've built that you've been able to bring over and apply to any and as an entrepreneur? I mean, I don't know if this is a skill or not, but you, you have to be self-aware. You have to understand what your blind spots are and you have to be humble and, and honest with yourself about what you can and can't do. My starting point was I probably can't do most things very well. There's probably someone that can do it better. I can identify with that starting point. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm not good at most things. So what I need is I need to bring people around me who are great at you know doing different things that need to be done to get a business off the ground. So, um, you know, what I'm good at is, is finding people that, and, and, um, and working with them on, on trying to find, you know, common ground for delivering a vision. Here's a common problem for those of us who are good at finding people. It's how to plug them in and incentivize them to join a new team. What have you learned that you apply now and that you help other entrepreneurs think about? Obviously, incentives are very important. You know, it's not just about alignment on vision and values. It's also about incentives. Um, one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a, as an early founder is giving away too much or too little equity. So, you know, you need to make sure that your, your cap table strategy is, is there from day one, that you've got a mind to, you know, how much are you, how much risk are you willing to take and what does that value that? For those who perhaps aren't entrepreneurs by nature, or there's just j- jumping into this, I want to pause for a second. Could you help explain something that took me a long time to really understand? And that is a cap table and what a cap table strategy might be. Yeah, so CapTable is um, is basically a, a ledger with uh, all of your different shareholders and the amount of equity they hold in your company in terms of the shares. And then, you know, you've got a valuation for your company that over time you expect will hopefully increase if you're, if you're doing things correctly. A good cap table will, um, you know, enable you to model scenarios over, you know, if I, if I raise this amount of money at this valuation and I bring in this many investors, you know, how does that dilute the overall pool and what does that leave me with versus my co-founders and vice versa? You know, having a cap table strategy in place that's basically a vision of what you want to get out of it at the exit. You know, how much equity do you, are you willing to part with? 
Begin with the end in mind. <laughs> yep. Yeah, begin with the end in mind. Exactly. Um, because, it, it, you know, founders take an extraordinary amount of risk. And if you're going to start off with an idea and take the opportunity cost of trying to make it grow, you need to be mentally prepared for all of the hurdles that you're going to face. And you need that cap table strategy in mind will help you justify those risks along the way. You know, progress and change are not achieved by standing still. We must challenge the status quo and do things differently. There are moments in time that change the course of our history, and for us, that time has come, a moment to act now for a brighter solar future. In a global scenario where the demand for renewable energy is constantly growing, solar has the power to shape new and powerful energy models to drive progress and prosperity for a sustainable world. At Suncast, we stand with FEMA, and together we can shape the future of solar. Learn more about how FEMER is changing the future of solar at solar.femer.com. That's solar.femer.com. I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list but can be such a drag well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you want to do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. I'd like to get to one of the other sort of core fundamental elements of how your company has been built. And that is, as you've described to me, a merger culturally of civil engineers with software engineers. I have to imagine software engineers haven't often spent a whole lot of time on infrastructure projects. What are some of the learnings for you from that tension between these two different cultures? That's a fascinating question. And it's so relevant right now because, you know, so many energy companies are trying to recruit and hire software engineers and the cultures couldn't be further apart. Early on, you know, I was I was not on the software engineering side, didn't have much of an appreciation for uh, just how hard software engineers uh, work and how hard their job is and very little understanding of what their job really entails. And I learned sort of through experience what their job entails. It took me quite a while to get my head around it. And what I see now is, you know, when we're talking to customers and other energy companies, they are now where I was, you know, five years ago. They don't have a clue really what goes into what a software engineer really does. And on the flip side, software engineers mostly haven't spent time in the built environment. Um, they don't know how hard a project manager or construction engineer's job is because they haven't done it either. So there's this, there's this knowledge gap between the two sides that has to be bridged. Like they, you know, they have to come together in order to, to move, um, you know, to, to accelerate the, the transition to net zero. You know, we need both sides to cooperate. And Ian, we, we've tried our best and, and are continually uh, improving on building a culture where our software engineers understand our customer journey and where our customers understand just how critical software engineers are to that journey. How do you do that? Actually exercise that within the company? Is there a regular cadence of meetings? Is there an open, open knowledge sharing platform? How have you actually thought about helping these two different cultural divides come closer together and, ex and experiment in learning what each other do? Well, firstly, what we try and do is find software engineers who have worked in the built environment somehow. So we, we've been very lucky in that regard. We have a good bulk of our team who are software engineers 
have had exposure to uh, project development and renewables. Well, that's interesting. So that's a key learning actually is how you filter the software engineer profile. Yeah. So, you know, it's a rare skill set, but, um, you know, people that come and work for us who don't have that skill set, um, who are just pure software engineers. I mean, one of the things that I do is, is I just tell stories about what it was like when I was a project developer and just try and, you know, relay some of the, of the pain points that I experienced and that my former colleagues experienced throughout that process. It's hard to get a sense of, of anything without doing it yourself, but, um, you know, you can, uh, there's, there's, there are ways that you can kind of communicate, you know, what the struggle is like from the customer point of view. I mean, the other great thing that we do is we put software engineers uh, on calls with customers as well. And we try and give them as much exposure to customer feedback as possible so that they can get their own sense of, you know, what customers are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Do you typically focus on the larger kind of next era style clients or smaller one to 10 person dev shops? And are they focused? So that's part one. Part two, are they focused on greenfield, brownfield, or are they focused more on the actual infrastructure built environment, like the construction side? You know, that'd be like more like the Swinnertons and, and uh, signals of the world. Right. So it's, it's development. So it's, it's greenfield and brownfield development. Where our primary target are the smaller, the smaller companies, but we all, we, at the moment, I can't say who just yet, but we have a couple of enterprise level negotiations in progress where, you know, so you would expect, and we actually expected that the bigger developers would be more um, digitally sophisticated and they actually aren't. So we've been, you know, negotiating uh, larger contracts of late with, with larger firms. And it turns out that they have a lot of the same needs that smaller firms do, even though they have bigger balance sheets. I think I really uh, am starting to get a picture of where you sit in the marketplace and why uh, the project, the product exists. And, and I think that it's, you know, it's, it's timely and kudos for being able to see outside of the bubble of kind of the, the direct cause that you were championing to be able to say, how can I help others? I think that's amazing. Another way that, as I mentioned earlier, you have thought about how can I help others and in many ways help myself is this green investment forum. Now, those who are part of the Suncast tribe know that I love getting people together. It's one of the things I live for. And every time we go to Mexico City, we always get, you know, 50 to 100 people in a room and have a big, uh, a big fun time, right? Dinner, music, and, and mostly networking. How did the idea of the Green Investment Forum, which effectively, as I mentioned, is a dinner club, come about? And I'd love to hear how it helped you get not only a sense of the market, but momentum for your own business. It's a different scene in Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, it's pretty old money. There's kind of, a, I don't know, an old school way of doing things up there. I happen to meet some interesting people through uh, my PhD who are, who are interested in, the, in sustainability, who are trying to move investment into projects, but you know, we're, we're finding there to be a lack of good project flow and didn't really have access to the opportunities they wanted. So I said, well, look, you know, I've actually, you know, I know a few people that have pipelines that could be interesting for you actually have some ideas as well about, you know, your strategy. Um, you know, I don't want to, I'm not a management consultant. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you my advice for free, <laughs> but you have to buy me dinner. So, um, so we, we got together, you know, we, we started having kind of informal dinners with a group of us that over time turned into something a little bit more formal where uh, we would bring in actually, you know, targeted guests to facilitate conversations that were structured around a particular theme that's not so much going anymore. Uh, I just find myself too time constrained to, to manage it. But we had several really interesting meetings where people, kind of like a, a more formal green tech meetup with C level players. It's kind of it's kind of like that, really. Uh, it's just uh, you know 
slightly, you know, more money involved and, and, you know, more, slightly more corporate. Did but, people pay to be at the dinner? No, we we got it sponsored. So RBS. Of course. Sponsored. RBS. RBS has, yeah. Royal Bank of Scotland has some really uh, amazing uh, properties. And our first dinner was held at the original RBS headquarters uh, in their ballroom in, in Edinburgh. And Fantastic. Beautiful, beautiful facility. Actually, you, you told me a fantastic story. Tell me about this, um, this like private meeting that kind of started this international mafia. Maybe we'll, we'll use that as our last, our last sort of landmark story because I want to I get into some of the last, the, the, the final pieces of the, of the interview. But this story blew my mind. Tell me more about acromancy or something like that. Uh, so, no, this is Aknakari. So, Aknakari, uh, that's right. Yeah. So there's, a, there's an estate uh, in, the, in the Scottish Highlands called Aknakari which is, I think, in the early 20th century. I don't remember the exact year, but early 20th century, kind of, you know, start of the modern age. I think it was um, Rockefeller, uh, like Standard Oil, Rothschild, and, and someone else. Um, they, they basically had a meeting to try and create uh, the world's first international cartel. They were only partly successful in doing that, but you know who, you know who copied that model, of course, was, uh, was OPEC. We indeed have a lot to learn from the oil and gas industry, and uh, and that is Aknakari. I think that name is amazing. I'm going to have to visit that place. But I didn't know. I didn't know about this. Or, and this was like early 20th century, right? That's right. Yeah. So just started the 20th century, just when um, you know we were starting to figure out that you could use oil for a lot, a lot of stuff. The bulk of our uh, industrialized economy is on the back of you know these these wizards of economy and natural resources figuring out how to collaborate rather than compete. And they were fiercely competitive people. I mean, that's the thing to, I think, to take a note of, like, you know, we have people now in the renewables industry, I'm not going to name names, but we have people who are incredibly arrogant about our market, you know, shouting, you know, we're going to be the next big thing and blah, blah, blah. But if you actually look at our market capture and you look at where we are as an industry, we're tiny. We've got a long, long way to go. Um, we should work together. Once we've got 50, 60% of global electricity, uh, the global electricity market, then let's compete. But, you know, until then, we have no place being arrogant about it. No, we have to raise the tide. That's right. So what are some key lessons or takeaways for you, Philip, from some of the most important mentors living or deceased in your life or career that you've gleaned insight from? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I guess on a, on a business side, uh, I'm a huge Aaron Ross fan. Um, so Aaron Ross, formerly of Salesforce. Um, I listen to a lot of his YouTube stuff and uh, his book, Predictable Revenue, I think is, is a, great, a great Bible for you know, people that are just trying to get into building an early sales team. I guess on a, on a philosophical level, uh, I read all sorts of stuff. Um, I'm reading The Perennial Philosophy right now by Aldous Huxley. In my personal life, my mentors have always been people that I've worked with as co-founders. You know, I, I learn a lot from the people I work with. I learn, I learn a lot from my team. I know mentors are supposed to be, you know, older and more established than you, but I actually learn more from the young people we work with than I do from most of the older people I know. No offense to uh, those old folks who I, who I still love, but um, there's a lot to be learned from the younger generation. Are there any books apart from the one that you mentioned from Aaron and obviously perennial philosophy that, have had a particular, given you a particular moment of insight or shaped the way that you lead or grow yourself or your company? Yeah. I mean, I guess I read a ton of nonfiction. So that's also really helpful. I mean, I could, I could get very academic and talk about uh, some of the, uh, the academic authors, uh, you know, who write in, in geopolitics, who 
have influenced my thinking quite a lot. Sure. Um, fire, fire one away as an example. We like to give some takeaways for folks to be able to go and do their own deeper research. Okay. So if you really want to understand how, uh, how the economies work, then Susan Strange uh, is fantastic. Uh, the late Susan Strange. Any particular work that you'd point people to? Yeah. States and markets, uh, casino capitalism, political economists, I, very geeky political economists are kind of my mainstay. At least where I was a full-time academic. I love it. Well, folks will probably no doubt reach out to you on LinkedIn uh, sure. after what I consider to be a really fantastic interview here and ask you to help orient them a little more if they've got questions. So I'll encourage folks to do that and to check out your uh, social links in the show notes of this episode. I've got a couple more questions before uh, we call it a day. Is there a particular habit or consistent practice that for you has a huge impact or yield in your life? If you can make 10 minutes before you go to bed or when you wake up in the morning to meditate, I mean, I know that's a cliche, but transcendental meditation is hugely impactful. You know, it's, it's a natural way of triggering your neuroplasticity and, and, you know, giving yourself a sense of calm, especially with the lockdown. I struggle to wake up and go to bed in a flow state. Um, my, my goal for, for next year, for the end of this year is, uh, is to, you know, enter a flow state every morning. So that doesn't always happen, but I find that if I, if I start my day off with 10 minutes of transcendental med- meditation, it certainly helps a lot. Where can folks find you and learn more about what you're up to, Philip? Uh, well, the best place, of course, is, is probably LinkedIn. I'm not really that active. I should be more active on Twitter. But um, so Don't shit on it. If, it's, if Twitter's <laughs> not your thing, LinkedIn is a great platform and it's not getting as, due, as just deserved right now. Yeah, LinkedIn's good. I, you know, I love LinkedIn for uh, for sharing updates and stuff, and for getting industry insights. Uh, so LinkedIn is a good one. Uh, my Twitter handle is Fibrun, P H I B R U N E. As you can see, I was late to the Twitter game. Couldn't find anything better than that to to sign P-H-I-B-R-U-N-E. up. P H I B R U N E. Yeah. Okay, uh, that's good. So I don't keep that much, but yeah, LinkedIn's a good place to connect with me, um, or send me an email. It's uh, p at co. Well, let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction, Philip. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball as we roll into 2021? I think the most impactful thing that will happen over the next 20 to 30 years is uh, I think state-owned energy companies will start to massively invest in distributed generation. And I think that'll be a combination of pragmatics, uh, economics, but also regulation. Most of the world's energy resources are managed by governments still to this day. It's in the hands of those massive state-owned energy companies to decide their own fate. And the sooner they embrace distributed energy, the better. And uh, the more longevity they'll have over the lifetime of, you know, of, of, their, um, of their firm. And I, I predict that those state-owned energy companies will see the light and, uh, and start massively pivoting towards DG and that's going to change the world. Love it. And with any luck, they'll uh, build their development portfolio on top of any. That's right. <laughs> Philip Bruner is the co-founder and CEO of Enian, a project development software to help you and others in the infrastructure business do business more seamlessly. It's been a pleasure to have you here on Suncast with us. Philip, look forward to having more conversations like this one. It's been a pleasure, Nico. Thanks for, for having me on. All right, Solar Warrior, thank you for sticking around all the way to the end. And as we wrap up 2020, I just want to say thank you again for being 
here. You could be anywhere. And thank you, Philip, for sharing your story with us. I'm inspired by your fantastic stories and insights. I'm going to have to look into the story of Aknakari and report back on that. Fascinating stuff. Well, hey, if you're fascinated by Phil's stories and you want to dig in more, you can find the resources and highlights from this discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and so much more over at mysuncast.com. And since you're already hopping online to check that out, would you mind sharing the episode as well with someone on LinkedIn? It's a real treat when Phil and I can learn how this episode resonated with you, and I'd like to know who do you think needs to hear this story. We will, of course, still have a Thursday episode. Yeah, even on Christmas Eve. If you like hearing how rock star developers build their companies, you will certainly dig this week's entrepreneur from Mexico and his two gigawatt track record. Well, thanks again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. It's also where you can learn how you could become a sponsor or partner with us and the thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions here twice a week on Suncast. Remember, you are what you listen to. You're also what you eat. So take it easy this week on the carbs and sweets, eh? All right, it's almost Christmas, so here's wishing you a very merry and restful holiday season. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.